Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William. I'm here with Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Hi, William. It is our second episode of DVAM, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And today is a very special episode. TCFV this year is celebrating our 45th anniversary, which is very exciting. And to help us talk about that and explore it, we have TCFV's most tenured staff person, Maria Jose Angelelli. Hi, Maria. Hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes, I'm so glad to have you. It's been this is season four and this is the first episode you've been on and we're just very excited to have you. So for those of you who don't know Maria, Maria is the director of our support and service providers team, but she has been with TCFE for a very long time and has done pretty much every level of role. And so Maria, could you introduce yourself to the people? And just how you got involved with the domestic violence movement or with TCFE? Sure. Well, I got involved with the Texas Council on Family Violence as a volunteer. About, I'm embarrassed to almost say this, but almost like 40 years ago, I was working at the local shelter and had a lot of questions about how to improve the program and why things were done the way they were done. And so I would ask the people that were my coworkers and my supervisors, and many of them were on the board at TCFE. So they connected me right away with TCFE. And as a staff member, young, new staff member at the shelter, immediately got connected with TCFE and what was in place and what wasn't in place. So that's really how that all worked. Now, you asked me, how did I get involved in the movement in itself? It was not planned. This was not the course. I was at the University of Texas on the clinical psychology path. That's what I was going to do. And my clinical psychologist advisor asked me to volunteer at a variety of nonprofits so I could learn about different populations. And I just saw something in the women that I was working with at the local shelter that was amazing to me. It was like there was no convincing that you had to change your behavior. There was nothing I had to do other than give the women at the program resources and let them choose what was best for them. And that to me was really unique in comparison to all the other nonprofits that I worked at. And so, you know, I I just, I really started as a volunteer and just fell in love with the work. It's hard work. It's really hard work. But there's something very fulfilling for me about providing options and resources. Yeah. And direct service going from there all the way through to this like more macro level position at TCFV working with systems change and policy change and doing the trainings for advocates. And that's a pretty incredible journey. So for those of you listening, again, we're going to, you just heard Maria say that she's been around TCFE for roughly 40 of its 45 years. So she has a lot of the knowledge and perspective. And so what better person to have here to celebrate the 45th anniversary of TCFE with us? We will be talking about TCFE and about the domestic violence movement. So again, like any other episode, please take care of yourself if you feel like you need to step away or you just need a break from this episode or the topic, please do so and just join us back whenever you're ready. And to kick off this episode, we always do an icebreaker because it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I'm thinking, you know, what is the most impactful, the most fun, the most, the coolest Domestic Violence Awareness Month activity or campaign or event that you have participated in or that you've seen done. Maria, do you want to start? Sure. You know, I think every single domestic violence awareness activity that anybody plans is significant because the goal is the awareness, right? And it's many times to honor the victims that have been killed. So all of them to me are very special and meaningful. But if I have to pick one that really stands out to me personally, would be one that we did in Corpus Christi at night during a conference. We used to have our conference early on in October. 
and a part of the domestic violence awareness movement. And we lit every conference attendee for the number of victims that had been killed that year received a candle and almost like a boat-like receptacle. And we went to the bay with the lit candles and let them float away while a member, a very dear member of TCFE, played the horn. And so that was really moving to see all those lights, those candles move into the darkness of the ocean. So, yeah, that was really impactful. But they all are, William. (laughs) They really are to me. Yeah, that does sound really like an incredible visual and just the symbolism of it sounds really cool. Samantha, do you have any? Yeah. Well, first off, I love that. And I just, water is very healing to me and just nature in general. So I just imagine that as like a very peaceful way to commemorate. So for me, I guess sticking on the theme of volunteering, when I was in my undergraduate career at university, I did some volunteer work, did an internship with our Women's Resource Center on campus. And one of the things, one of the projects they had me work on was the Silent Witness Project, which I don't know, some folks may be familiar with, but there's, you know, silhouette cutouts of victims of domestic violence, homicide, and then they have like usually some information about them, maybe their name or their age or a little bit of their story. And in order to get that information, I reviewed the Honoring Texas Victims Report that TCFE puts out every year. And so as this undergraduate intern, I was reading this Honoring Texas Victims Report. That was like my first task on the day of my internship. It was a heavy day for me. But it it was just captivating work that I felt really connected to. And then cut to gosh, I don't know how many years later, here I am working for TCFE and I'm able to work on honoring Texas victims in a couple of different capacities. And it just feels really full circle for me. And so that's a really meaningful DVM activity that I feel really connected to. And it feels really important to our work. Yeah, that's really great. That's like full circle, right? And yeah, also a heavy first day for an internship. Yeah, I guess that would be... <laughs> right. Maybe. It was like, here, casually read through these like 100-something narratives from H2B. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, when I worked in shelter in Florida, we had a 5K every year. And of course, if you know me, I am not a runner and I would not be doing the running. But participating in like organizing it and seeing how many people showed up in Jacksonville to run the event or we also had like a fun run like and so and just watching people you know with like a sea of purple shirts and people had teams and like there were businesses that were there and being able to really table and give information to a lot of these people and a lot of the people that came out to support the teams that weren't actually participating in the run was a really cool event to help organize every year i think dvam was for a lot of local programs is like the time to shine and so it's like you have these big events we also had like a golf tournament at some point like and it was so it was just being able to see how some of these events and how the community came together around the event whether it was for the public consumption of the event like where you know it's like oh look we're participating in this event or people like really had a personal connection Everybody had a different story about how they were involved. And so it was great to see an event that was had very serious content because we did do like a program that talked about like victims, but it was also a day for celebrating survivors and like freedom from domestic violence. And so it was just a really great event that brought the community together. And so I think that events like that are super important to uplift domestic violence as an issue and also celebrate survivors and their resiliency and their journey and their just dedication to the movement because so many survivors then want to like put back into the movement and back into the shelter whether it's a volunteer a staff person and because they were assisted when they you know needed a safety plan or they needed an advocate and so they take the like one of the darkest parts of their experience and put it back in to help other people. And so um, really hearing those survivor stories was also really amazing. So DVAM can be a powerful time. And so 
it is DVAM right now. When this episode is being released, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So please, we'll put a reminder in the episode description, but please check in with your local program to see what they've got going on for Domestic Violence Awareness Month this year and figure out a way that you can be involved. You know, while y'all were talking, I was thinking of the common themes that have been throughout the decades, right? The public awareness during domestic violence, the honoring and remembering the victims that were killed, celebrating the survivors. And I think one of the things that we've added in the last couple of years, at least at TCFE, is looking at what are the coordinated community responses that are working and what's not working and really doing a deep analysis of that and then going to the regions and really talking with people at the regional level. Here we have decades and decades of examples of what went right and what went wrong and how can we really work and build on that data that we have to change and make it safer for everyone. I love that because when you have an organization who's been around for a little while, right? You have that depth of knowledge. You have that historical like life lived experience. And Texas is such a huge state, right? It's not really possible to have like this blanket approach that's going to work for every single community. And so I love what you're talking about, you know, going to each region and making sure that what we're talking about with them, we have those coordinated community responses to domestic violence that is a little bit more specific to, you know, a rural area or a more urban area, you know, or specific regions. And so I love that TCFE recognizes that. And, you know, for example, even just the building up of our CCR team here within our own agency, you know, somebody who can specifically work on that kind of approach and help communities build their own coordinated community response, I think is really telling of that trajectory of integrating that approach. So Maria, going back a little bit to the beginning, can you tell us a little bit about how TCFB started? How did TCFB come to be TCFE? So a little disclaimer, <laughs> I wasn't around at TCFE when it first started, but I've had the honor of working and researching with the people and individuals that were involved during the beginning. So I know that we had nine women that got together and that were operating in local domestic violence programs already. And they wanted to see how could they communicate and meet on a regular basis. And as those nine women representing the nine family violence organizations that were back in the mid to late 70s, so we're talking about a long time ago, they got together. And what I found out in my research is that one of those members had what's called a Watts line. And I had no idea what a Watts line was, but I learned that that was a mechanism that's way before the internet, way before cell phones. And back then, long distance calls were costly. So this person that had this Watts line made herself accessible and they used her line to communicate. So one of the first things that set TCFE's foundation was communication, how to communicate freely and make it accessible with each other. And so then out of those nine people and individuals, six of them got together and started drafting the Articles of Incorporation and formed TCFE. And they had a board. And what I think is really critical and for us to remember is that the first board member was a survivor. And so it was really important to those nine programs early, early on, to have the voice of survivors be central. So communication, networking, survivors' perspective. And as they got together and coordinated their efforts, from what I've heard and from what I've gathered from, you know, like I said, I've had the honor of being able to talk to several of these individuals firsthand. They told me that what they really wanted to get was funding. Funding 
early on, early, early on for emergency shelter, for legal advocacy, for training, and believe it or not, for battering intervention programs. So our founders, you know, these nine spectacular individuals really had just the foresight of knowing how to set a solid foundation for us. Yeah. And you mentioned you've had the opportunity to talk to so many of them, but you also compiled a history of TCFE through some of those conversations. And so will you talk about that process a little bit? Yes. So that was really fun. So during COVID, (laughs) I thought, okay, what can I do to stay connected with people? So I thought, all right, I usually travel a lot. So I was home and had a little more free time. So I decided, okay, I'm going to connect with all these individuals. And it's interesting because at first the stories were a little different. There was a little perspective differences from each person. You know, was it nine? Was it 10? Was it six? Who were the people? But what was fantastic about this is I was able to have every single person that I could become in contact with to review and look and say, ah, yeah, that's right. I remember now. So there's not a single piece that I know of that anybody says, hey, that's not quite right. We got to, I would say even more than consensus, we got to 100% agreement. It was a fun process. I was able to identify the first two TCFE employees and then the first four. And then we were able to document through the decades kind of what was the funding that was significant or what was the policy change that was significant. So it's a short, you know, I think it's a page and a half kind of a flyer. But it's really concise, and it was a fun project to be on. And the two founders, the two main founders, just told me last weekend that that they felt really proud of that piece. That's great. And yeah, you typed it all up, and it's on our website. And so we will be sure to link the history of TCFE in the episode description so folks can go and review that piece as well. Yeah. And one thing that I like about it and just about how you continue to talk about TCFE, Maria, is this kind of fluidity and this like metamorphosis of TCFE of how it kind of started off as this, you know, really tight group of women, right? Trying to accomplish and build something and then how we see it and how you talk about it changing and now it's a state coalition that's been around for 45 years, right? And it's just really this amazing accomplishment for everybody who's been involved from the very beginning. And so I'm wondering how you've, a little bit more specifically, maybe how you've seen it, how you've seen TCFE develop and change over the decades. Well, it's definitely grown, right? From the four original staff to, I think we have currently about 30, somewhere in between all that history. Some TCFE staff realized that there was no national domestic violence hotline, that the funding for the national domestic violence hotline ended. And so TCFE filled that gap in and started operating the national domestic violence hotline, which now we know, right, is this phenomenal standalone agency filling a critical, critical role. But that's like TCFE, right? To even see something at the national level that's missing and say, hey, we can take this on. And then also to to recognize when it was time to separate because it became bigger and stronger, right? Than an individual program. And also during that time period, starting programs for teens. So that was really significant. That also, you know, went with the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which was the correct thing to do. Because really, TCFE, we don't provide direct services, but that stepping in and being able to provide something to set it up and let it go, I think is a really critical part of TCFE. The funding that we started many, many decades ago, I see that through funding the high-risk teams and the coordinate community responses. That's something that is a foundational part of TCFE, and I hope that we can continue because that really 
is able to give funds for very targeted, coordinated community response. And I think that's really critical for creating safer Texas. And prevention. Let's not forget about prevention, right? So we embarked on prevention early on and developed a phenomenal prevention team in our history. And now it's developed into what y'all have created, which really addresses another aspect. So my team and I focus a lot on the coordinated community response, on the training, capacity building. Then we have that other, you know, phenomenal team policy that looks at all the policy changes. But the third piece of our work, prevention, is so critical. And so we're evolving. We're constantly evolving. Yeah. And you starting out as a volunteer 40-ish years ago, like I'm sure that a lot of people don't know, even for example, what a Watts line is when you were talking about that earlier. And for folks, it's W-A-T-S, Watts. It's a wide area telephone service. And so even like just the technology of how TCFV has been able to do its work and connect. I mean, TCFV has, I think this is true. Confirm or deny, Maria. But I think TCFV <laughs> has the at least one of, if not like, I'm saying like top three, but I think maybe the largest membership network as far as like the number of domestic violence service programs in the country. True or false? I have heard that. I've not confirmed it. Okay. But that is what I've heard. Well, we'll just say it's true. And I know that we're not the largest coalition by staff. I know that that's not true. We're up there, but I think it is true that we have the largest number of domestic violence program members, or we're close anyway. Anyway, but one of the challenges of TCFE is keeping all of those people connected. And so I'm imagining that that has evolved a lot over, you know, now we're using Zoom and we're using email and different, quote unquote, high tech methods to stay connected with all of the programs. But I imagine that like when you started even as a volunteer, and then in your first like staff role, it was very different to probably one, there were fewer programs. I'm, I'm sure the number has continued to increase as we've moved forward in time. But also just how do you stay connected? How do you, are you going to have to physically visit all of these programs more regularly? We do go out to programs still, but like, yeah. So I would just imagine that, that the technology development has just changed the way that we're able to stay connected with our membership network of programs. Absolutely. So, you know, I didn't even know what what's stand for. So I'm glad that you told me. I knew what it was once uh, Toby Myers explained it to me. But after that, what came to light was area codes, right? So I don't know if, you know, like Houston has 713, the Central Texas has 512, etc. So back, I guess, after Watts, I'm not really sure, but the area codes provided free long distance calls. So you could call whomever in, in the seven. If you had a 713 number, you could call anybody with a 713 number for free. So we divided the state of Texas into regions and we did it based on area codes because we knew that that's how they could communicate and they could communicate in a free way, right? They pick up the phone and talk to each other. That's such a cool tidbit to know. Like, I never realized that that's how we got our regions. And it's not until you talk to somebody who was around and was able to see that process happen that you get to know these cool things. That's so cool to know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's so, I mean, communication obviously is the number one technique of coordinating, right? And changing and impacting advocacy and policies and, you know, when do you go to the legislature and when do you, you know, how do you get a woman from one county to the other? So that communication was critical. So, yeah, it started with Watts line. And then apparently I think what followed after that was the free long distance. So back, even when I was a staff member, so first, like I said, a volunteer, but when I became a staff member, what we did is we would compile these notebooks heavy notebooks, probably six to seven inches thick. And we would have the dividers that said technical assistance for survivors, information for executive directors, you know, house managers, all the different kinds of legal advocates, all the different you know, board members. And then we would photocopy and put 
all these handouts and articles and then have them mailed and shipped to each program. And it was it was laborious to do that. And then there would be they were so expensive. We can only do one per program. And that's how that information got passed around. Obviously, conferences, trainings, in-person, visiting on-site have always been and still are really important, and that continues. But one thing that COVID taught us is that not everything has to be an in-person meeting. And we have been able to have these monthly virtual meetings that are job-specific. So like the finance people get together once a month, and the... Domestic violence advocates get together once a month and the battering intervention and prevention facilitators and staff get together once a month. So that's above and beyond listservs, but they actually get together. Sometimes there's, you know, as few as 10 people and sometimes as many as 80. And it's a way of communicating and networking. And that really came about because of COVID. We didn't even think about that. But during COVID, we were like, okay, we can't see each other. We can't go visit each other. We can't have in-person regional meetings. How do we stay connected? Yeah. And we do that too for the prevention folks. We have a monthly call and same. Sometimes it's, you know, five or six people and sometimes it's, you know, 25 people. And yeah, I mean, before COVID, we would do some virtual things like every once in a while, if someone like wanted a call, but we needed to be on, but really we didn't do much Zoom before COVID. And then, yeah, like everything had to had to be Zoom. And then some of those things have stuck since then, since we've gone back to doing some stuff in person. And doing stuff virtually is great. It's super accessible to a lot of folks. It's not the same as being in person. You know, you, you can't feel the energy the same way. You, I feel like your attention is still pulled in a million different directions when you're at your desk in your agency and, you know, the hotline call is going off and, you know, there's people around you. Or you're working from home and your kids are there and your dog is there and, you know, there's pools on your attention that wouldn't be if you were in person in a conference. But it's super great for people whose organizations can't afford to send a bunch of staff to a conference or folks who just don't have the transportation or don't have the time to travel. Texas is so massive, you know, that, you know, folks in El Paso, it's an eight hour drive. Certainly they could fly, but then that's a different type of expense and coordination. And so it's great to hear like Samantha was saying, like even knowing that that's how our kind of regions started to coalesce around the area codes and then sending big, huge binders of things to folks in the mail like that. That's It's great to hear how those things used to happen. One of the ways we did communicate that was really critical was faxes. So we had a fax tree. I don't know exactly how it worked. I was I was definitely employed by TCFE when we had facts and we would send alerts and we would set it up so that it would have some kind of tree impact. So it would, you know, you fax this person, that person had to fax X amount of people. And then those people had to fax other people. And it just spread throughout the whole state. The gossip is, and I've not verified it, but I was in the office when this happened. All of a sudden, our electricity went out and we had no ability to send any faxes for this alert. But it was really unique that it was only our office that lost electricity (laughs) and phone systems. What we heard was that we are very small but mighty with our policies. And this was a policy that we were trying to make sure. Caller ID, I don't know if people, now it's such a mute point, but back in the day, You can make a call. Nobody knew who you were. They didn't know where you were. They didn't know your first and last name, much less your telephone. And so when caller ID came, TCFE was so concerned about the impact that this would have on survivors. And so we were blocking as much as we could the mandated caller ID for everyone and put and really worked hard to get legislation so that you would have to opt in. Not opt out, but opt in for caller ID. And during that legislation, that's when (laughs) our fax machine and our electricity just in our one little area of this office building stopped working. And so we always think, oh, maybe it was the telephone companies that, you know, because they really, I mean, they, I guess they were looking and they knew that that was in the future. But we were really concerned back then about what this meant for survivors. 
And if you look back in the history, you can see the amount of funds and efforts that we did to make sure that this was an opt-in for everyone, right? Not just for survivors, but that everybody had the ability to say, I want my first and last name and telephone number displayed every time I call because it's a confidentiality issue. Yeah, it's like the beginning of the tech safety conversation, which is so fascinating to me because now it's evolved into a lot more like intricate, you know, obviously as tech you know, becomes more intricate and integrated into our lives. So does the tech safety conversation. And so it's just, it's really cool to see that TCV has always been <laughs> advocating for tech safety for survivors. Yeah, caller ID legislation is what we called it. And, and it's important to think about like TCFE's role in that, like both as TCFE, but also like the membership and the role in thinking about this thing that if you don't work in this movement or you're not a survivor yourself, like you may not think like you think caller ID is great or it's, or it's going to be super helpful to me as the person being called to know who is calling. But you don't think about those impacts about survivors and their safety. And so there are so many examples of that now about, for example, insurance, right? Like when now when you if you don't file a particular waiver, like your explanation of benefits goes to whoever is the policyholder. And if you're a survivor on your partner's insurance and you are seeking health care somewhere uh, against your partner's wishes, if that's the particular controlling behaviors that they have, then like that EOB will be sent to them. And so a lot of survivors have to navigate without insurance or file a particular waiver. It's just a whole it's a whole thing thinking about how complicated it can get when survivors safety and confidentiality is involved. And so TCIV serving in that role for 45 years is a, is a big deal. And thinking about survivor safety, like I think that that brings me to my next question is like, why was it important for TCFE to be formed in 1978? Like, why did those nine women come together to say we need this coalition or we need this council from what i've learned from the research and talking to the founders it goes back to the need to network and communicate the need to really hear and learn from survivors perspectives and really infuse that information at all levels of our communities you know, state and local and making sure that people really understand the impact that domestic violence has on the survivor. And from the very beginning, making sure that the responses from the community are survivor-centered. And, you know, back then we didn't say trauma-informed, but that's really what it was. Yeah. The late 70s, early 80s it's when a lot of the states is, is just like happening across the country where like a lot of the state coalitions were starting around that time too and i think one of the interesting pieces is we use the word coalition and i would say most again using terms that i don't actually have numbers for but of the state so every state and territory has its own domestic violence coalition for folks who may not have known that and tcfe is the one in texas but most of them use coalition in their name, like the Tennessee coalition, for example. But Texas, you chose council. It's, it's a different C. Texas Council on Family Violence is supposed to coalition. And I always thought that that was interesting when I moved to Texas and started working here. Other folks use like network or alliance. Um, so there are other words in the mix. But Texas, the, the, they chose council. And I always thought that that was interesting. So what I've heard... And we may have to double check this, but what I've heard is that the original intent was to say commission because the founders wanted to make it sound very official and very like, you know, that, that there was something way behind, like a lot of power behind this organization. And they were informed <laughs> that that is reserved for government entities. And so then they went to council. Wow. So it was really about, from my understanding, it was the name has a lot of meaning. It was about, you know, how do you make sure that everything that we're talking about is going to be heard and listened to? 
from a perspective of this is a really serious organization that's going to change, that's really going to make long-lasting change. And so the attempt was to call it the commission. (laughs) It's just so interesting to hear those parts of of history. And so thinking about also, yeah, the, the, the term council, like you think about a city council or you think about, you know, the folks that are working on behalf of a large constituency and getting input from those people constantly and really working to, as a group, to offer suggestions, remedies to problems like, you know, so I think I think that it's a great, a great name, personally. So it was not, you know, it wasn't the original decision, but it was not a haphazard name. It was carefully thought about. You know, the more and more I talked to the, the women that were there, you know, these nine women, it's like they really thought about this. Like, I mean, the funding, the legislation, they made funding for victim services, survivor services, and battering intervention. They codified all this, you know, so that they really thought about this. The name was very deliberate also. Yeah. And so when you think about TCFE and why it started, what are the ways that you think TCFE's mission has stayed the same or evolved over the past 45 years? When, when you think about, obviously, you, you weren't there at the very beginning, but when you think about from the folks that you've talked to or from when you did come in, TCFE's mission and the work that we do then to now, thinking 45 years later. Well, you know, the, the training and the support for individuals working at domestic violence programs, the support for the whole agency, recognizing that agencies are local, autonomous, community-based programs. I don't think that's changed. I think that has been a strong foundation from the beginning and continues. We had that time where I talked about where we did direct services when we had the programs for prevention and intervention with teens and the National Domestic Violence Hotline. So that's where the mission changed somewhat for direct services. But to me, that was about setting up programs that weren't in the state or at the national level and then, you know, setting the foundation and letting it go. So then that's the mission that it changed back then, right, during that time period. But now we're back to the original mission of staying focused within Texas, but being a great partner at the national level and even international. You know, we've, we've, we've done some work internationally. So the work of networking, supporting programs, recognizing that they're independent, autonomous, community-based programs, respecting the regional differences is always been and I hope continues to be a foundational piece. Yeah, that's really, really powerful thing, I think, to provide that support to the people who are doing the work on the ground, right? So my final question for you, Maria, is, and it goes nicely with, you know, your last statement of hoping that that continues. (laughs) What are your hopes and dreams for TCFE over the next 45 years? Well, I would hope that we have local, regional, state, national, global communities that really embrace the changing of abusive behavior, that we really embrace that when somebody becomes abusive, we recognize that we can change, we can help that person change so that they can be a healthy, happy individual that does not harm people. That's what I really hope. Yeah, and I love that. And I think I think that's something that TCFE tries really hard to focus on as well. There's always the piece about survivor support that's always important, right? That's always at the forefront of our minds within this movement. And also, I think a part of survivor support is having partners who are not using harmful behaviors, right? Like that is one of the ultimate ways we can support survivors. And so, yeah, I agree that in addition to all the things that we normally do within this movement, that that addressing that culture within our society of 
like that encourages sometimes some negative behaviors. I think addressing the root causes and helping people, you know, something that BIP does, right? Like addressing those belief systems that people have and addressing those root causes of why people might be using abusive behavior, I think is something that TCFE works really hard to do and something I'm really proud of within our agency. Yeah, I think one of the other things that the TCFE is really trying to lean into, trying to learn from is diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Like I think that we started a BIPOC advocates group recently. We have an LGBTQ stakeholders group and really bringing in all of these voices who in our movement as a whole, in the domestic violence movement as a whole, haven't been centered historically and really trying to elevate those voices and also learn from them and how we need to change, what services we need to offer that we aren't currently, what services we need to offer differently and what things we need to continue doing just the way that we are. I think that TCFE is really trying to grow and develop and and listen to the communities that we serve. And I think that that is something that I hope continues over the next 45 years as TCFE continues to grow and be able to, you know, we're, Maria said earlier, like we're about 30 folks and there's so many different things that touch domestic violence in so many different areas. And so I hope TCFE continues to grow so that we can have dedicated staff and to address all of these areas. And ultimately, you know, I don't know that 45 years is is the mark, but I think all of the goal of, of all domestic violence organizations is that like we're all out of a job one day, right? And so I think that, again, I don't know that 45 years is really going to do it, but but you can hope, I guess. But that's what we all work towards. We all we, we're all working towards a world where domestic violence, family violence isn't doesn't exist, isn't causing harm to communities. So I definitely think that another hope that I have is that we continue to remember our history. And I think projects, Maria, like you, even though you kind of were just like, what can I do? Like, how, how do I do this? It wasn't, you know, a dedicated, like, you had to do this history. Like, it's something that you were interested in and you chose to do and you wanted to preserve those those stories and those memories. And I think that that's really incredible. And I hope that we can continue to, you know, document and we continue to do that type of research. And even if it's, I think just in this conversation, I've been having a really like meta moment and that like, I've been here for five years, which is definitely not 45, but you know, that's a long time too. And so like being part of TCFE's history as we're, you know, living through it is is a pretty cool reflection that I've been having. Because even in those five years, like, we had a pandemic, we had to like totally shift how we were doing things. So yeah, I think I just think that I, I really appreciate your dedication to preserving the story and the history of TCFE. And just thinking about ways that we can continue to do that as we move over the next 45 years. Yeah. And in 45 years, we're going to have new people having a podcast episode talk about, you know, 45 years ago, they had this thing called Zoom. And <laughs> I did want to mention something that you you were talking about diversity and inclusion. And absolutely, we we have a lot of work to do in that. But I neglected this to mention earlier that TCFE at the beginning started what was called CANS. We called them CANS. Caucuses, allies, and networks. And so networking was for children's advocates, legal advocates, house managers. You know, it was done, it was by, or executive directors, really about your job description. And the allies were for people who wanted to support a group that, you know, you were an ally. So the children's, out, the adult allies to children was one, for example. So you weren't, you weren't a child, but you were an adult that was supporting teens and children. And the caucuses really early, early on, we identified the African-American caucus, the Latina caucus, which I was a part of from the very beginning. And we were one of very few coalitions that actually gave money to the caucuses to support their work throughout the year. And we were, they had, they were in our work plan. They had, it was a minimal budget. I, I want to say it was never over $2,000 a year, but what each caucus got was one to two dedicated staff to support them. 
And they were not to be led by staff. It was to be led by the chair person that was elected from that caucus. And so there were rules about how people were elected. And it was all, again, all about being very autonomous and representative from the local programs. And that, that lasted for a long, long time, a couple decades, actually. Yeah, I think they were still active when I started towards the end of being active. But and then some of them have changed into like the BIPOC advocates group and the LGBT stakeholders group. And yeah, there's still like remnants of the survivor advocacy group or the survivor can. So yeah, it's and then COVID just kind of did just roll through and really mess some stuff up on like engagement and being able to bring groups together and gather folks and we lost. And sometimes, you know, models have to change, right? Sometimes models run their course and then you have to think of a different way to do it. And I, I believe that TCFE has really made changes when it needs to make changes. Yeah. And yeah, I realized we did hopes and dreams, which is usually the cue that we're about to end the episode. But I do have one other question speaking of changes and things. And because it's DVAM, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And one of the things that we do during Domestic Violence Awareness Month is release our Honoring Texas Victims Report. And so speaking of changing and how things have developed in honor of DVAM, like, could you give a brief history of HTV? We'll link the current HTV report as we have the resources in the episode description for folks to check it out. But HTV hasn't always been HTV. And so how has TCFV researched and honored and commemorated victims of family violence throughout its history? So it first started with the first and last name of the victim and the age, and it was called the Grim Tally. It was literally just a list of women that were identified as being murdered by their intimate partner. Then that changed to the women's killed list. And that became not only first and last names and age, but the city and a narrative. The narratives that were associated with each each victim really was based on whatever the newspaper said. And so those are you know, newspapers, journalists tend to write them in, in a not trauma-informed way and not always all accurate, right? But that was the women's killed list. And then it transformed to honoring Texas victims, really writing the narrative so that they are based on facts from law enforcement, police report, carefully checking with the DA's office really fact-checking and writing them as best as we can so they're trauma-informed. We used to say the name of the perpetrator killed and then the name of the victim. And we had a couple of mothers that reached out to us and asked us if we could please change the order and start the narrative with the name of their daughter instead of with the perpetrator, which we did. So that's another change. And the report really focuses based on all the data on what are the things that are working that are not aren't working what are community responses that we really need to focus on so that the numbers of women killed is each year less and then about five or six years ago we started looking at lgbtq victims and we started looking at male victims so it you know it has really changed throughout the the decades The goal of recognizing and honoring the women that we as a community have completely failed is there. But how we present it and what we try to get from the data has really changed. Yeah, I appreciate that history and perspective because I think HTV is, I think it's super important. And just knowing the thoughtfulness that goes into even how the narratives are written, like you were saying, like the order of names, just the words that are used, the issues that are taken up and discussed in the the issue section, and how the data is presented is all really important. And so I hope folks go check it out. We will have another episode later this season with Makisha and Sarah. It's become kind of a, an annual episode of kind of reviewing HTV in detail and talking over some of the issues that they explored in the research or that 
they want to pull out. So we'll we'll have that episode later in the season, but we'll go ahead and link some of that information so people can review it or use it during Domestic Violence Awareness Month to have some of those conversations with their families, with their coworkers, just reflections for themselves. Yeah, and we'll be sure to link the current HTV information, whatever documents we have for that in the episode description. And we'll also be sure to link the history that we would talk about today that Maria worked on that's on our website. So if you want to take a look at that, it's really interesting. It's really worth the read. Really goes in a lot of detail. And it's really cool to see that transformation over the decades. And then, of course, it's DVAM. So like William mentioned in the beginning, make sure you get connected with your local family violence program. See what kind of Domestic Violence Awareness Month activities they have going on. Get out there and support those. Show up in your community. And you can also find some TCFE-specific DVAM activities on our website. And then make sure that you check out our social media as well, because we'll be updating those with any DVAM activities additionally to our website. And then we also have a really exciting fundraising event happening for our 45th anniversary. Maria, do you want to talk a little bit about that before we sign off? Yes, absolutely. If you can go to our website and you can donate in increments of 45, $45, 450, 4,500, and it can be specifically for our anniversary. Really would like for people to support us as much as we can, as you can. You know, on a different note, if people are interested in the archives of TCFE, the University of Houston has archives. It's called the Myers Tucker Angelelli Archives, and it's everything TCFE. So all of our documents are accessible to people who want to research TCFE. They're there. So maybe we can add the link for anybody that's interested. Yeah, absolutely. And what a cool accomplishment, Maria. And it's just, it's such a cool experience to hear you talk about it. And the passion that you feel for this is obvious and you can hear it when you talk about TCFB. You can hear the pride in your voice for the 40 years that you've dedicated to this agency. So thank you for all your hard work and thank you for helping to move us forward as an agency. And thanks for being on the podcast. (laughs) It is my first podcast. So I am thrilled and feel so privileged and really honored by y'all. I really want to thank you so much. Thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah, thanks, Maria. I appreciate you being here. We will be back next month. It's the third Wednesday of the month that our episodes come out. And come back and see us on the third Wednesday of November. And we'll have another episode um, with some of our TCFE coworkers. And if you have any questions about this episode or any other episode, we'll always put our email in the episode description as well. So feel free to reach out and we'll have all those other links for you to check out the history of TCFE in one way or another. And so everyone have a great TVAM, be safe, and we'll see you next month. Bye.